This episode is supported by Vegamore. I'm a month and a half into my Vegamore journey. I don't know if you've ever had a garden and planted seeds, but when that first little growth breaks ground, it's exciting. And on my very head, I can see some new growth in the areas that I've noticed hair thinning before. And it's exciting to see those little babies coming in. I use the shampoo, conditioner, and the grow serum, which have a lovely, mellow, warm citrus smell. I've been consistently using this and it makes my hair feel soft and full. And it's really important to me that I use safe and conscious products whenever I can. And Vegamore is 100% cruelty-free and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Elevate your hair wellness routine this year with Vegamore. For a limited time, get 20% off your first subscription order by going to vegamore.com slash mind and use code mind at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression. And this podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome back to the Mom and Mind podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kat. I am very honored to have our guest on today, Abla Benyaya. She is a Moroccan, London-based postpartum doula and birth educator. She is the mom of two under two and a postnatal depression survivor. She's passionate about supporting women during their postpartum journey, navigating through their mental health, mom's guilt, and reclaiming their true identity. She suffered from postnatal depression after her first child and then got pregnant pretty quickly after two and a half months with her second child. And it was definitely a shock for her. She shares with us what that was like, what helped, what didn't, and what she wishes she could have done better now that she knows what she knows. She also shares some of the experiences and perspective she has as a Muslim and Arab mother. And most of all, she really wants people to understand the importance of self-care and getting help as quickly as possible. So let's hear from Abla. Welcome, Abla. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I was just mentioning to you, I, I love speaking to people who are outside of the U.S., <laughs> specifically who also have like, you know, different cultural experiences, but are in different medical systems even. Yeah. Because, you know, here we, in some ways are used to the same story we hear and about the interfacing with the medical system. So anyways, I know that, you know, from, I assume you have a lot of good stories as a doula. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But very specifically, I'm happy to hear about your story. And so please do start wherever you would like. Sure. So like you said, my name is Abla. It's a Moroccan name because that's where I'm from, born and raised in Morocco. And then I moved to France. That's where you can hear my little French accent and my English. <laughs> and then finally moved to London when I got married. And I also got married from someone with someone who's outside of my ethnicity. And I would say fairly outside of my culture, although we share the same religion. 
And after two years of being married, we decided to try and conceive. And because of um, PCOS, it took us a little while, but I would say fairly short amount of time compared to people with my condition, around seven to eight months to actually get pregnant. And obviously it was all that we expected, all that we wanted. We were very happy, very excited to share the news with family and friends. So the pregnancy went, I would say, fairly good, if not amazing, because obviously when you're waiting for something for that long, I don't know, mentally, I was just not even allowing myself to complain about back pain or mm. lack mm. of sleep already and all of that. So um, when I got pregnant was the pandemic and obviously countries were closing their borders. But I was very sure that either my mom or my mother-in-law could join us in London. And my mom still lives in Morocco. My mother-in-law still lives in Pakistan. So we were kind of sure that they would be able to join either one or the other. Like, I was sure. And a month before my due date, I realized that they probably will not come because the borders were still closed and we were getting closer to the date. And I think this has triggered antenatal depression already. I was extremely sad. Even the burst of energy that I got from the nesting faded away. And I was crying constantly, but then thinking, you know, it must be normal. I must be hormonal with, you know, the 40 weeks coming. And I didn't necessarily make a link between antenatal depression or my mom's not being able to come. I just thought it was normal. And I think it is important to mention my culture and where, where I'm from, because there's still a lot of untold stories around mental health. And sometimes we don't even say that it's mental health. We would think of other cultural thinking or beliefs. And because of that, I didn't even think of mentioning it to my mom. Like, hey, I'm crying. Is this normal? Is this something that I'm supposed to do now? Because I've heard of baby blues. But what about before the birth? It all started from there. Yeah. Thank you for bringing in the that the cultural piece. I think that's true for a lot of people. It's talking about yeah. mental health is relatively new in general. Yes, but certainly the what you were describing, like culture-based reasoning or even religious-based yes. reasoning for understanding what's happening, could be very different from region to region. Exactly, and I think there's definitely a stigma, and I wouldn't put it just to my culture or my religion. I think it's an overall stigma around perinatal mental health, yeah. where you will be, I wouldn't say complaining, but just sharing what you're feeling. And people would just say, well, aren't you grateful that you have a baby or you should just, you know, be so happy. And people are dictating what we're supposed to feel. And sometimes we're just not feeling it as a pregnant woman or as a postpartum mom, as a mom in general, sometimes we're just tired. It does not mean that, you know, we're ungrateful for the pregnancy. And God knows I was grateful because I waited for it for so long. But then the birth arrived and it was not at all what I expected. I wrote a birth plan where I wanted all of it to be fully natural, not medicalized with very limited intervention. But we went for the last antenatal visit with my husband. I was fine. I just mentioned that I was feeling my baby moving slightly less than usual. And instead of reassuring me or just maybe doing a, a quick monitoring, I was quickly rushed into triage and asked to do an induction. And obviously induction is painful and induction is a long and lengthy process. And we kind of challenged it with the doctors. But again, I think it comes from the cultural aspect of it that back in Morocco, you know, we do trust the doctor very much. We have still the concept of 
the family doctor. It's mm-hmm. a doctor who takes care of both my parents, myself, my siblings. He knows wow. everyone. So doctors are kind of part of your family sure. and they know your family history and all of that. Yeah, so that's a deep even, relationship. Exactly. So even coming here, I kept that relationship or I kept that status for doctors mm-hmm. in like if the doctor is saying something, it's probably for my own good. And so I should listen to it without mm-hmm. challenging it. My husband wasn't necessarily excited about the idea of induction, but I got a very defensive, now that I think about it, very defensive. You're not a woman. You don't know what I'm feeling. If they're saying that we should induce, then we should induce. Mm. He went with my choices, obviously, but it resulted in three days of labor and it was long. It was painful. Baby didn't want to come. And finally, on Friday evening, I was already exhausted, to be honest. They called me to say that I could go up in the labor ward and finally start pushing. So I got the epidural, although I said I didn't want it, but they told me that because I got induced, it would be better to have the epidural. Again, I went with what they said. Then I started pushing. It was nice. I enjoyed that part, if anything. That was probably the only part of the entire process that I enjoyed. And then suddenly there's again two doctors coming in, looking very worried in a way, and like, oh, it's been an hour that you're pushing We need to bring you now to the theater to get baby out. We won't do a C-section, but we'll try to get a baby out downstairs. And so again, in a minute, I thought I found myself in an episode of, you know, Grey's Anatomy or something Mm -hmm. like that, because within seconds, I barely said yes. It's like they were waiting for me outside. People came in the room and uh, right away I was put in a bed. Whilst they were like literally pushing me to that second room, I was signing a paper saying that I was okay with them doing whatever they needed to do to save the baby and basically discharge papers and all of that. My husband disappeared and it's just because they took him for him to scrub in, but he didn't even get the time to let me know. And so within a minute, I really panicked. I just couldn't understand what was going on and I got scared. And they increased as well the level of epidural, which resulted in me being a little bit high. So I was yeah. just saying whatever went through my mind. And one thing that I was really focused on in the fact that there was a man in the, the theater, and I did say it in the birth plan that I didn't want to have any men. And this is for religious beliefs. And funnily enough, he was Muslim as well. So I kept telling him, can you get out of the room now, please? Being a little rude. And he was just saying, look, I know I'm just going to sit next to you your head. So you, I won't be seeing anything. Don't worry. And just as a disclaimer, Muslims are okay with seeing each other naked um, if it's in the course of a medical examination. So him being here was still something that I was religiously allowed, but I was just not feeling comfortable. And not only that, we have another belief that is around the number of people in a birth. And basically, as the mom needs some help, God will send angels during that time. But for any human that comes in, there's an angel that leaves. And I kept just thinking about that and counting the people in the theater. It was 16 people. And I kept thinking, wow, I'm missing on 16 angels. That's 16 too much. People? 16 people. Why? Two doctors, one person for my epidural, um, three nurses, oh. two midwives, one pediatrician, my husband, another lady who was just taking pictures, another lady who was just cleaning as, you know, if there was poo or blood, she was cleaning as we go. I mean, it was too much. Plus, it's a university hospital. So there was also oh. students who were just here and watching. And somehow, that's what I remember from the birth. I remember talking yeah. to the man and I remember counting people. And I don't necessarily remember pushing. I don't remember anything that could have been a positive thing. 
And I was also very much focused on the lady who was, I mean, the gynecologist, really, because she was just looking focused, but I thought she was worried. So at all point, I was telling her, is my baby dead? Can you tell me right now? And again, I don't think I had any emotions by say- while saying this. It was just me being high. But because in the videos that my husband took, you can see me very bubbly and smiling and just asking, is my baby dead? Just let me know. I'd rather know. And how you looked and how you felt were two different things. Oh, yes, definitely. Because deep down, I felt extremely worried. Ah. I thought that something happened to my baby. Unfortunately, I also linked the religious aspect to something happening to my baby. It's because Mm -hmm. there's a man inside or it's because there's so many people in. Mm -hmm. So I think my focus was definitely not on having my oxytocin levels up and not having my adrenaline down. It was quite the opposite. And so they took out my baby with the forceps. And she cried for a second. Then they took her away right away because of the forceps just to check her for a minute. And by the time she was back on my breath, I think that's where me being high completely disappeared. I somehow came back to earth and reality, Mm. realized that she was here. I was so happy. I cried. My husband cried as well. This moment was nice. This, I remember feeling like, okay, it's been 10 months. I've been waiting for her and she's here. She's finally here. I forgot everything about the birth. I would say within within a day, I didn't really care. Then the same evening, my husband was again, due to COVID, not allowed to stay with us. So at 7 p.m. he left and my baby did not sleep from 7 to 6 a.m. She actually was, I was trying to breastfeed her, but she was not latching. And as I didn't know that, I thought she was drinking milk, but definitely she wasn't. Now I know that she wasn't. I remember going to the midwives and begging them for help. And they said, well, you know, you're the mom now. You have to, you have to understand why your baby's crying and try to get to know her. But she was not even 12 hours. (laughs) She was not even a day. So so it was really, really disturbing because the Moroccan medical system is in such a way that in the evening, the babies goes into a nursery. Mm. So the moms can actually sleep and the midwives only bring the babies for a breastfeeding session. You can have the baby with you in the room if you want to, but even if that's your choice, you still have a midwife with you to guide you into what's happening on the first night. Right. How to change an nappy even, or, you know, um, yeah, how to I... feed, how to burp and, and all of that. This episode is supported by Ritual. I am by nature and nurture a bit skeptical. I have to see for myself if something works or if it's helpful before I just believe it whole cloth. And I'm open to trying things out to see for myself. And that includes finding strategies for my wellness. I have a historically low vitamin D, so it's important for me to take Ritual's Essential 18 because it has D3 in it. And their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin has several other high quality traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. What I love and have always loved about Ritual is that it's a female-founded company, and it's a B Corp, which means they're holding themselves accountable, and not just long-term, but also to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash momandmind. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash momandmind for 25% off. This episode is supported by Factor. Eating better is better with ready-to-eat Factor meals. And ready-to-eat means pop it in the microwave for two minutes and done. 
I mix in a few of these meals into my rotation for the days that we're on the run or that I don't want to make anything. I chose the high protein and calorie smart options, one of which is the mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice with garlic roasted green beans. This is restaurant quality and so tasty. I can adjust how many meals I get in my order as much or as little as I need every week. Plus, I can pause or reschedule my deliveries anytime, which comes in really handy for our busy schedule. Head to factormeals.com slash momandmind50 and use code momandmind50 to get 50% off. That's code momandmind50 at factormeals.com slash momandmind50 to get 50% off. So you had an understanding already of the Moroccan medical system. So like being in the position that you were in, this was in London, correct? Yes. There was no guidance, I assume, to know how it would be different. Nope. I even asked them very naively, where's the nursery? Where should I leave the baby now? Mm. And they were like, no, you're just not leaving the baby. The baby stays with you, which is fine. I think I would have chosen that option anyways, but it was more around the support. Yeah. I mean, we still laugh about this night because I made a little album, photo album to my husband. I kept sending pictures with, you know, funny quotes and it's 3am and I'm still not sleeping on mommy's breast and this is happening and I just Mm -hmm. made a major poo and we're still laughing about that night but really I wasn't laughing. I hated that night. It's probably since my baby was born the worst night ever and it's just sad to say that it's probably the night where I should have had the most support Mm -hmm. because it's the first one and there were so many people in the hospital to support but yeah I didn't find any You're just alone, you and baby. Right, you don't even have your husband of course, right? Yeah. So the next day they said, look, it takes a little bit of time to discharge you. But I think my husband was extremely angry of how the situation was handled during the night. Mm -hmm. So he managed to get us discharged within two hours. Bless him, because I really needed to get out. And Mm -hmm. once I get out, I remember telling him, the world hasn't changed. It felt weird. I'm not trying to be self-centered, but it's just whatever happened during the past three, four days changed my life. But I came out and it was the same world. So I was just shocked by how much the world hasn't changed. And we went home. And again, very different from a Moroccan experience that I could have gotten. There was no one here. In Morocco, I would have been welcomed with date and milk. And you use um, like that sound that we make when we're happy. And there would have been maybe some singing and and a lot of gifts, a lot of people, maybe even too overwhelming to an extent. Mm. But then I I came into an empty room, empty house, um, where the glass of water that I left on Wednesday morning was still there because my husband didn't come back home. He stayed in a hotel in front of the hospital. So, yeah, I remember looking at that and thinking, did I make a good choice giving birth in London? I should have just tried to go um, somewhere. I knew that with COVID anyways, it wasn't possible, but that was my first thought process. And then I think I was fine for the first three days. And then on day three, baby cried so much that we called everyone we know who has children. At 11 p.m., she started screaming on top of her lungs. We thought she was in pain. We thought colic, but then someone told us it's too early for colic. She's only three days. And mind you, during the past three days, I've been breastfeeding, or so I thought. And then I told my husband, you know, when I changed the nappy at 5 p.m., there was a bit of blood in the nappy. We should probably go and check that. Obviously, it wasn't blood, um, it was crystals, but I just was too ignorant at that point. But when we reached the hospital at midnight, someone took us in, weighed the baby, and she had lost 20% of her weight, mm-hmm. where the norm in UK is around 10%, and I think in US should be 
12, but pretty much similar. So obviously 20 is, is quite a lot. Unfortunately for me, I met a very angry doctor who had a very bad way of expressing what was happening because I'm sure I'm not the only mom in the world with whom the baby has not latched properly and who lost weight. Now I know I'm not the only one, but he made it sound like I was and like I've done it on purpose and asking again, um, you know, like, weren't you able to see that she's not drinking? You know, there are certain signs to see if the baby's drinking. Didn't you check that? And obviously I was sleep deprived. I was already tired still from the week before where I was laboring for three days and I just burst out crying. I couldn't handle it. He said, okay, now it's not the time to cry. Mama, it's time to feed the baby, right? So he brought me formula and a bottle and he said, you have to formula feed the baby. My husband was here, but then he asked my husband to leave the hospital again because of COVID. Uh, He didn't want to. So they, I mean, he threatened to call security. So he ended up leaving. But the reason why I'm talking about this in details is because I'm yeah. sure this has created the foundation for the postnatal depression. For sure. From, we stayed there for three days until she caught up the weight. And during those three days, no one told me that I could still try with the breastfeeding. So I dried out breastfeeding very, very quickly. She was formula feeding. And because of that, the issue and the good thing, and I would say the pros and cons of formula is I would put this element as a pro and a con is that you know exactly how much baby has drank. So I was just thinking, oh my God, she drank five ml less than before. Is she again going to be dehydrated? Mm. She drank seven ml less than before. Like it was just too much. I was already started to be obsessed around certain things. Yeah. And when I came home, that's where I had the first ever intrusive thought where basically we came home, I did a laundry and I saw myself putting the baby in the laundry and in the laundry machine and having the laundry machine on mm-hmm. and me not being able to open it. So just, and it's as terrifying. I'm picturing it, I'm panicking, I'm sweating. I'm not crying, but I'm definitely sweating and panicking. And my husband didn't necessarily pick that up. But from there, that was the first ever intrusive thought. But I, I started having around 20, 25 like these on things that are completely irrational, by the way. Mm-hmm. Like let's say I'm cutting myself an apple and the baby is in, like, my baby was in a cot in another room. And I would be thinking, what if I fall and, you know, the knife gets through the door and goes to the cot mm-hmm. and cut her? Impossible in the physics that we live in, in the world uh, that we live yeah, in. But yes. that's what my mind was telling me, that yeah. I was going to do something like that. And I was ultimately going to hurt her. I would be the reason why she's hurt. That no one in the world was able to hurt her except me. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking also... Like, God, why did you give me a baby where you knew I was going to hurt her? And you know that I'm inadequate to be her mom and I'm just oh, unable no. to breastfeed her. And I'm unable to, you know, the first thing that I was supposed to do is feed her. And I completely failed on that. And I kind of believed what that man said, what that doctor said, that it was my fault, that maybe it was something that I've done consciously. I don't know. And I think I was saved probably a week after, which is amazing, I think, compared to a lot of people. Because a week after, I had an old friend who called and uh, asked me if I was okay. And I said, no. I managed to say, I'm not okay. Something's wrong with me. And the reason why I said that something was wrong with me is because I started having suicidal thoughts already after day seven or eight. Mm. And I said, that can't be baby blues. Like I go in the balcony and I think it would be great if I could jump right now. My daughter would be better off without me. Mm. But also, there was some sort of a paradox where I was also thinking that's so selfish of me to do to do that and let her live without a mom. 
So how about I jump with her on the sling and both of us just go and it would be better. And I think this part is the part that scared me where I thought, am I, if I was able to hurt myself, I don't think I would have been scared. But if I was thinking of hurting her, and in that case, it would be a conscious choice, if you may, although I know it wasn't now, but I felt like it would have been a conscious choice. So I probably should tell someone. And I definitely didn't want to tell my husband because I didn't want to scare him. So I told her, uh, she had the best reaction ever. She said that it's normal. It's okay that I wasn't crazy. And she would send me help. The next day, Adula came. We talked for a long time. She hugged me and I cried for a long time as well. And I realized that's just what I needed because she didn't say much. She just said, what you're feeling is normal. A lot of women are going through this. I'm going to give you the number of a therapist who's probably going to say the same thing as me. But it feels to me like you have postpartum depression. You have to get support. You have to get mental health support, professional support, because we still friends to this day she tells me you know the day i told you this if you're physically your shoulders went from up to very down like mm-hmm. i feel relief now mm-hmm. and my face lighten up like okay i'm not crazy it's gonna be fine if other women are facing it that means i can get out of it and that was the important bit for me just to think i'm not the only one just mm-hmm. to think that it wasn't me it was mm-hmm. just my hormones it was just how certain things were handled and From that day, I would say everything went good. And when I say good, it's just because I got professional help, being from a therapist, but also physiotherapy uh, for my pelvis. I started also going to the gym a little bit. I started doing things that made me feel good physically and mentally. And also religiously, I finally was able to put words into it. And I found my conversation with God very useful, especially because I obviously was waking up in the middle of the night to feed the baby. So I found those moments very special because I could be with her without anyone checking on me, without Mm -hmm. anyone really intervening in anything. But also once I would put her back in her cot for her to sleep, I would take five minutes and just talk to God. I wouldn't necessarily pray as Muslims pray at that point in the middle of the night because that wasn't the time, but I would just sit and talk to him and tell him, look, today has been very difficult or today has been amazing. And just give me guidance because I'm a bit, I'm lost. I'm really lost. And it was great to have those three elements together, as in the professional mental health, the professional physical support, but also the religion. One feeling that I remember from that period is a lot of anger. I felt extremely angry against all women around me Mm. because I have a big family. Mm. I have my mom, my aunts, Mm -hmm. my grandmothers. And I was just thinking, why did anyone told me about that? You know, we spoke about miscarriages. We spoke about the difficulty of being a mom, but how come no one ever mentioned the postpartum period, how lonely it would feel, how difficult it would be? So after two months, we finally, like the borders open and I managed to go to Morocco. Oh, that was a relief. (laughs) And Morocco very much so helped because I got to have everything that I expected from the birth, but two months Mm. later. Uh And the traditional postpartum care for a mom is that she does nothing, Mm -hmm. absolutely nothing, except bonding and feeding her baby. So... There is no laundry, there is no cooking, there's no cleaning. Everyone wants to step in and do that for you. Mm -hmm. You're fed very uh, healthy food, very savory food. Even if I wasn't breastfeeding anymore, people were still sending me food, gifts, gold for me, Mm -hmm. gifts for the mom much more than for my daughter, as a matter of fact. And then I had the conversation with my mom then. Why didn't you say? 
And she said, look, I think what I had was postpartum depression as well. But back in the days, it wasn't called like that. Oh, wow. It was just, we were just saying that, you know, it's normal after that, it's the hormones and it's going to pass. And she said, for as long as I remember, I don't think it passed for the first two years of your life, but I didn't have support. So how am I supposed to support you on something I didn't even know existed? And this opened the door for a lot of conversations in my family. A lot of women yeah. came forward and started talking and were like, oh, wow. So that was happened 20 years ago or maybe even 30 years ago. That's what I was feeling. Wow. So mm-hmm. it was good somehow that I got postnatal depression because it liberated the, the talk around that even within my family, within my friends. I had a lot of friends who were pregnant the same year, uh, but I was the first to give birth. And I was always telling them about that, like, make sure that you get help very early on and that you get the proper support. And I do remember (laughs) people smiling and thinking, that's probably going to happen to you, but not to me. And then, (laughs) I mean, I think it's a normal thing to just think when you're a first time mom and you're pregnant, you know, uh, the same way when you see a mom in a restaurant putting a screen for their child, children, you say, you might be thinking, well, I'm not going to be that mom. (laughs) But then you have children and you are that mom because... Those little monsters are tough. Exactly. So it is interesting to think that we're going to be able to control every single aspect of motherhood until we actually become a mom. And like my husband said, we were the perfect parents before becoming parents. (laughs) And then we became parents because before becoming parents, no, there's not going to be any screen time. They're going to be sleeping in the bed all the time. No bed sharing at no point, exclusively breastfed and organically fed. And we did a bit of it. We did. And some of it we didn't. And some we did for a little while, then we stopped. And some we just started a little later. And it's fine. I think this is the message that I'm trying to get out there with uh, my job now as a doula is it's okay Mm -hmm. to not be, quote unquote, the perfect mom. I think the perfect mom is the mom who takes care of herself in order to take care of the baby, is a mom who's nurtured. And even for the husbands or the partners, when I talk to them, I often mentioned my husband because my husband quickly understood that, yeah, he could take care of the baby. And he was, he was, you know, changing nappies, playing with her. He loved really spending time with her. But I think he quickly understood that he needed to take care of me first as Mm. a priority Mm. so I could take care of my baby because no one can replace the mom, really. Mm. And so he did a very good job uh, for the two pregnancies and the two births to ensure that I was having three meals a day, that I was taking a shower every day, that I was getting a walk outside in the sun without the baby, even for 10 minutes, calling my mom every two or three days and just reminding me nicely, like, hey, have you eaten today? No? Okay, let me cook something for you. Let me bring you something. Mm -hmm. And just that is what I do believe a husband or a good partner is supposed to do because the new mom will forget about herself. She'll forget to shower. She'll... Gosh, I used to forget to use the restroom in the morning. So I would wake up and from the moment I would wake up, I would just carry on. Let me just wash the bottles. Let me just do a laundry and then I'll use the restroom. And then I realized quickly that it's 11 a.m. And I woke up at 6 a.m. So I didn't even use the restroom, didn't even take a shower, didn't even brush my teeth, didn't have breakfast. So after a week or so, he quickly stopped me. I was like, look, (laughs) if she's fed at 6 a.m., I can do the feeding. You wake up, Mm -hmm. but you take care of you until eight. And that was great to have those two That's hours awesome. in the morning, change my entire day. Then he would go to the office, but at least I would have been showered, the house is tidied, had breakfast. I was, I was feeling good enough to tackle um, being her mom for the rest of the day. 
And I can't really point out when the postpartum depression left because the reality is very quickly I got pregnant mm-hmm. at three months postpartum. Oh. Uh, and I think definitely getting the support was what I needed, but getting pregnant is what I needed, although it wasn't planned. Definitely wasn't planned, but it was exactly what I needed because my survival survival instinct multiplied. I thought, look, oh, now you're pregnant, uh-huh. you have a baby in you. Yeah, this baby hasn't asked for anything except that you actually created that baby. So now it's time for you to get your things together, go back to eating healthy, go back to sleeping through the night because he needs also oh, I see, I see. sleep and support. And he became my motivation, but also. Because I felt a bit guilty of not leaving my daughter as an only child for a long time, as we initially planned, mm-hmm. I wanted to spend so much time with her. So I did. It gave me the physical push, the, the energy burst that I needed to you know, take care of her better, take more time to, with her, spend right. quality time with her, have activities, mm-hmm. but also take care of myself. Mm-hmm. So I learned that balance. And I also learned um, through the doula and the therapy as well to let go of things that were not allowing me to have that balance. Mm -hmm. For example, I am a control freak when it comes to cleaning and tidying. Mm -hmm. And I like my house to be tidied every day. And I know it's hard when you're a mom, but it was something for me that is Mm non-negotiable. So my husband was like, we can afford to have a maid coming or maybe a housekeeper every two or three days. If that's going to be helpful, let's do that. But you don't clean because if someone's coming every three days, it's just the three of us I'm sure we can survive with not cleaning every day. Mm. So I was still clean every day because it's me, but very much less than what I would actually do. So outsourcing whatever we could financially, you know, pay for. Was it a housekeeper? Sometimes some weeks it would be catering. Some weeks it would be just the laundry to be outsourced. But then I started feeling less and less guilty about these things and thinking it, it is important that we do that, but it doesn't really add value the same way staying with my daughter does Uh and hugging her like that extra snuggle might get a long way but me not doing the laundry today I don't think it's gonna really impact us to the point of you know something wrong happening in our life oh yeah I love Um, how you framed all of that the added value it's not necessarily value oh that's an important one because I think a lot of people are so uh, similar to you um yeah are so highly motivated to keep everything a certain way but yeah and the trade-off listen I, I would definitely encourage that if this is how your brain will function I know for sure I cannot function in a very messy environment mm-hmm. due to the fact that I have ADHD but also just how I've been raised my house has always been cleaned so mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that to give that up but mm-hmm. you can outsource it husband can support and sometimes let it go as well. Because some days my house would be messy and the housekeeper wouldn't be here. My husband wouldn't be able to do it. But I would always try to remind myself, it's just the season of life that I'm in. At some point, the house would be clean all the time. Mm-hmm. Because my parents' house is clean all the time now. Mm-hmm. Because they don't ha- they only have very old children. So <laughs> right, right. at some point, mm-hmm. we will come back to that. So it's okay if now it's not. And I try to remind myself that even now, because... My daughter that we're talking about is two mm-hmm. and her brother who was born just a year after is one. So you can imagine um, the little, you know, they definitely have their fingerprints full of yogurt on the walls, sometimes on the sofa, um, <laughs> only hands in my hair, yeah. on my yeah. face. And when I complained about that to my mom, she told me, you know, one day it's going to disappear. That's just as simple as that. One day it's going to disappear. 
And I, I wouldn't say that you're going to miss it, but just understand that whatever comes with those little, you know, fingerprints everywhere is also very tiny hands and tiny babies that comes with it. So they're going to grow up. And so instead of focusing on, you know, there is like dirt on the sofa or they just brought sand from the park mm-hmm. in, in their room, maybe focusing on how much fun they had in the park and how much they love yogurt and how much they like to share it with me and carrying on cultivating that bond. So again, I can't say when my postnatal depression finished, but what I can say that I, is that I'm still in therapy and I don't intend to finish anytime soon mm-hmm. because obviously, um, as you may of course, no one thing open another thing that open another thing. And, mm-hmm. and now we're not talking about postnatal depression anymore, mm-hmm. but we're still talking about things that affected my life and is currently affecting me. So the therapy, I, I mean, for anyone who can afford it is not a luxury. It should be a need. And I think I'm also lucky enough to be in a country where it's free. I know it's not the case in US, but we can have access to free therapy in UK. And that is and it's such a like good added limits. value. It's not time um, to cut you off? At a... No, they will cut you off when the therapist feel that it's enough. So for example, I have a friend who tried after three sessions, the therapist were like, look, I don't see any need really to carry on. So three sessions, that's what we have. And for me, it's already been yeah two years. So apparently I'm in case where they believe it's still needed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is definitely a good thing about being yeah. in UK, that's for sure. And I will also try to be as much as I can and apologetic about the kind of mom that I am and what it means for me to be a mom. Culturally, there are things that I don't necessarily agree with the Western way of raising children. And in the beginning, I was hiding it. I was also blaming myself. You know, it's you're not supposed to do it. You know, if people here are saying that it's this way, then it should be this way or nothing. Oh, but then that, you know, becoming a mom taught me so much, of course, about being a mom. And I don't want to sound cliche, but it also taught me so much about myself, taught Mm -hmm. me so much about Mm -hmm. my own culture, because I finally made the effort to learn certain aspects of it. And like I said, the women, Mm -hmm. the women around me, we finally held conversations that were meaningful and deep about how they suffered with the lack of support sometimes, or feeling lonely, or, Mm -hmm. you know, one thing that my grandmother said that could be controversial today is like she loved being pregnant at the age of 14 because that's the age that she got married at and finished all her pregnancies at 20. She was done. Mm. So she was like, can you imagine when I was 20, your uncle was six years old. So he was like a young brother to me, but also I felt very young, very thin, very uh, healthy, and I was physically able to take care of them. So it was just interesting to get different perspective. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I wouldn't I wouldn't want that for myself. I wouldn't want that for my daughter. But it was just interesting to see that for her, well, this is the best thing about her motherhood journey is that mm-hmm. she started young. My mom would have another perspective and then my aunt another perspective. But that's why motherhood brought me so much positive things in my life because mm-hmm. opened up to the women around me, my culture, my religion, getting new friends as well. Some disappeared, unfortunately, because they couldn't handle you know, a crying baby or mm. the new setup of my family. Mm. And then some other friends became even closer or right. so okay. it is no a shift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is a, a complete shift. And I would say as well that I come from a very loving family. And when I say loving, obviously every family is loving to their um in their own ways. But what we do in my family, as in my parents, my siblings, is we express this love 
quite often. We say I love you all the time. We mm-hmm. gift each other gifts at all points for any reason, mm-hmm. any occasion. We support and are the best cheerleader for each other. So when people told me, you know, you're going to become a mom and you're going to feel a certain type of love, I kind of disregarded them thinking like, I already know the highest level of love. I've already tasted it with my family and also with my husband. I love him to death, really. So I can't be more in love with someone than I am with him or with my dad, my mom. And then I had my daughter, despite the postnatal depression and the anxiety around her safety and what's not, Mm. the level of love that I had for her and still do, I wouldn't compare it because it's on another level. It's that love that makes me think that if something were to happen to her, my life would be completely different. I wouldn't yeah. say destroyed because I know there are mothers who survive it, but right. it would be completely different. Yes. It would just change, change. my personality. It would change my heart. It would change my soul even. Mm-hmm. Whereas if something would have to happen to my parents, I would say that it's the cycle of life. As much as I love them, mm-hmm. my siblings and my husband, Mm-hmm. It would make me deeply sad, uh, mm-hmm. but I know I will have that love within me to carry on for them. But for my children, it's, it's something else. It's hard to describe, right? It's um, really, really hard to describe. Yeah, it's really hard to describe. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. And for a limited time, my listeners get an exclusive 15% off OneSkin products using the code MIND when you check out at oneskin.co. Well, I've kept up my mini resolution of taking better care of my skin after consistently using OneSkin for several weeks and all is going well. I can't see what's going on at a cellular level, but I can tell you that my skin feels soft and healthy. But they did do some cool research that looked at before and after exposure of the OS1 peptide to skin cells, and the OneSkin scientists found that the peptide reverses skin's biological age. And you can even see that study by Zonari A. et al. in the NPJ Aging Journal. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code MIND at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code MIND. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. New year, healthier skin. That's one skin. This episode is supported by Hungry Root. I am a creature of habit when it comes to food. Like I buy the same stuff in the store and generally make the same stuff over and over. Not really that fun. So in order to shake things up, I use Hungry Root. I can pick a whole meal and they send me what I need to make it. But I will also just let them choose so I don't get into my rut. And it paid off. I got the chicken shawarma non-flatbread. These are flavors that I wouldn't have thought to put together on my own, and they totally work. It was so yummy and so easy to make. And bonus, I also received for free organic roasted chicken breast that I threw into a salad for another meal. Hungry Root is my partner in healthy and yummy living. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Mom and Mind listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash cat to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash cat. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. I do have some just curiosities of your journey. I mean, there's there's so much in there that you yeah. went through and so many layers. I'm curious in particular about how the experience with the birth of your first child, if and or how it impacted either pregnancy and birth and even postpartum with your second. Yeah. 
I think because this time around, I was much more aware. First thing first, when I got to know about his pregnancy, it was a surprise and it was a bet. I was at a friend's house who just got pregnant and showed me the pregnancy test and panicking. I would have two children. I'm going to have a third one. I don't know how to deal with it. And I was just laughing. It's just like, don't even laugh. Maybe you're pregnant. And I was like, that's just not possible. You know, it took us <laughs> seven, eight months to get pregnant with the first one. We're not going to get pregnant after, you know, just being sexually active for like two months. It's just not going to happen. Plus, I was under contraception. So that was also another surprise. Oh, so she made okay. me buy a test. I came back home. I've done it just because I didn't want to waste it. And when he showed pregnant, I thought it was some sort of a joke. Right. I came off the bathroom. I was crying. My husband sees me holding a pregnancy test. He, d- he doesn't even know that I had a pregnancy test. Right. So he was like, what's going on? Why are you holding Noor, who is our first daughter, Noor's pregnancy test? And I'm like, no, that is a new one. And he said, wait, what? <laughs> You're pregnant? And I saw him physically got shocked. Uh, he sat on a chair. And I think it's just because my husband probably had, and still does, uh, PTSD from um, my own experience. Yeah. Obviously, being my husband, he was scared anytime I would cry or I would mm-hmm. tell him that I have intrusive thoughts. And if I would share with him, um, we will speak about the postnatal depression all the time. So I would tell him, today I feel like this, today I don't feel like this. So he was just scared for me. And so he was like, okay, can you, do you think you can mentally handle it? He wasn't scared about the physical part. He was just, can you mentally handle it? If so, we, we're going to do it together. And the problem is like, Islamically, if not, there is not really a, re- um, a solution because we, we don't believe in abortion unless it puts the mom in jeopardy. But that's what his point, his point was, maybe this pregnancy is going to put you in jeopardy mm. so we can end it. I would say this conversation lasted probably 10 minutes and within 10 minutes, we just said, no, no, it's, this is not what we want to do. We want to keep him. Mm. We want to keep that baby. So that was really brushed off, but we, we were still, I was still crying a lot. And interestingly enough, his, um, his brother, his older brother, the same experience, got pregnant after a few months of trying. Then she had her baby. And then three months later, discovered that she was pregnant. The babies wow. are exactly one year and two days apart. So she called, I mean, my husband called her and his brothers and said, like, you guys, you're the first to know this is what's happening. And my wife is panicking. And they were like, why is the best thing that ever happened to us in the world? Because their babies are now, I mean, they're not babies no more. They're now five and six. Mm-hmm. So they're like, look, now they're best friends. Um, they act like twins. Even if they're not twins, they, they do their homework together. They play together. They go to bed at the same time. It's such an easy life for us. And they have each other to entertain one another and play together. And once it's done, it's out of the way. You said that you don't like the newborn stage. Well, that's it. Like you're going to do it in one go and then, and then it's going to be done. And so they really did reassure me. When I told my mom, she insulted me. <laughs> Are you stupid? I thought I raised a daughter who was in, like, who was smart. Didn't you use contraception? And I said, yeah, I, of course I did. But then she was like, oh, okay. And then I'm retracting the stupid comment. Sorry. I thought it was, I think she was just panicking for me. She sure. knew that I was already yeah, yeah, facing postnatal depression. She was like, yeah. on top of it, you want to add a baby. But she kept a bright face. A few weeks later, they flew me to Morocco and, and we got to, you know, talk about the pregnancy and all of that. So during that pregnancy, Everything got much easier, much, much easier than with Noor. Very little nausea. Everything was very good physically. I was doing my walks. I was doing my yoga. I was really good at at doing all of these things. And of course, 
after calling my brother-in-law, I called my doula. And I was like, look, um, there might be an extension in your contract because, yeah. <laughs> and you're not allowed to say no, but you're coming <laughs> with me right. on that, right. on that ride. And she wanted to retire as a doula. Oh. So she promised like, look, you're going to be my last. So we're going to make it good. And so it became her little project and it became mine as well. Oh. We wrote the birth plan. We prepared for it. And this time around, I get exactly the birth that I wanted and that I was proud of. Oh. Gave birth just with a midwife and her and my husband. A little bit of music in the background, a little bit of Quran as well, as in like the, the religious book that Muslims have. I labored in the pool, came out of the pool, gave Is that birth. Home? No, it was not at home because uh, my husband was not really comfortable with that, but <laughs> okay. it was in the birth center. Yeah. So I'm not sure this is available in US, but that's mm-hmm. probably the best that you can get between a labor ward and home. It looks like home and the room was massive, very big. So I managed to get my walks, sit on the ball, the peanut ball as well, used mm-hmm. literally everything. It was painful for sure because I requested no epidural at all. It was painful and I also allowed myself for once to not control anything and just let go. And the fact that my doula was here, who became a friend at that point and a sister, and my husband was here as well, and he knew how to be ready for me. I just let go. I was like, the worst that could happen is these two are going to take care of it. So for me, I'm just going to listen to my body. If I want to moan, I will. If I want to scream, I will. Mm -hmm. And so I just let my body do what we wanted to do. When I felt like using the restroom and I, of course, the midwife got scared that I might have the baby in the restroom. Mm. But even then I said, look, I know this is not the baby coming. It's poo. So let me do it. Let me have it. After that, I even got to take a shower. I came out of the room though, of the bathroom. And I said, I think I'm ready to have the epidural. I didn't say it with that tone of voice. I was very aggressive. I told them you need to give me the epidural. I know what was on the birth plan. Don't listen to the birth plan. Just give me the epidural. (laughs) I could catch a quick look between my doula and the midwife. Later on, she told me in the brief, she's like, I knew then that the baby was coming in a minute. Oh, okay. So, right, right. Right, because that's usually the time. Pain. Yes. Of that's course. usually the time where the women just ask for epidural and uh, yeah, yeah. Get, get also very aggressive about it. Mm-hmm. And my husband was trying to reassure me like, no, baby, you said that you didn't want the epidural. I was like, you're not a, you're not a woman. Just don't even talk to me. Yeah. At that point, I love the fact that he retracted himself a little bit and let the women lead because I do believe in traditional birth and in traditional birth, the women are here, not the men. Mm-hmm. So he was just here to give me water, a little bit of air, talk to me a little bit, but whatever was happening from here till down, he wasn't taking care of it at all. He was literally just taking care of his wife. That's it. So the doula and the midwife found something interesting. They just said, how about we just check you, check how dilated you are to see if we can give you the epidural. By the time I lay, um, (laughs) opened my legs and um, she took my hand, put it down there and I could feel the head. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I could feel the hair. And And no wonder you wanted that epidural. And I said, what is this? What did you guys put over there? And I was so oblivious of the fact that it was a baby. They're like, well, that is the hair of the baby. He's coming out in a minute. You have to push now. I said, okay, then just give me the epidural and I will push. I was adamant. But obviously that's where my doula was like, look, that's the moment you're supposed to disconnect now. You're going to enter a very special moment. So just do what you're supposed to do. And somehow I remember that um, in the first birth, it was 16 people and now it's only three. So I was just counting on the angels and trying to picture them, although I don't know what they look like, but just trying to picture them and feel their presence. And somehow 
I blacked out completely. As in, I couldn't see anything. It's not that I blacked out, I forgot. Not like that. It's just my vision was completely blurred and black. But I was feeling really reassured because I was hearing, I wouldn't say hearing a voice, but definitely feeling something inside of me to tell me to push. And it came from every limbs of my body. Every cell of my body was telling me to push. So I just listened to that. Two pushes, baby was out. Just two. (laughs) It was enough. I didn't lose a lot of blood. Mm. Placenta came very few minutes after that. Baby was screaming. Right away, he came on my breast. I breastfeed him. And it was everything that I wanted to do with the first birth that I couldn't. So he really made my birth experience so different and gave me the birth that I was, that I'm proud of really. And during my postpartum, same thing, because I knew what would happen the first time, what happened the first time, the second time, I just did not even care about laundry, food, whatever. When friends would call and say, "Uh, do you need anything this time around? I would say, yes, I do. Please bring food. Mm-hmm. Please come and play with Nora a little bit. Please come and just hang out with me. I need to speak to an adult. I mean, the first pregnancy or postpartum, anytime someone would say, which everybody does when you have a baby, let us know if you need something. Don't hesitate. You, of course, never tell them that you need something. Right. But this time around, I did. Nice. And I would tell them, look, today, this person is bringing food. So please bring food tomorrow. And so actually, I didn't cook nor bought food for a good three, four weeks thanks to the support system that we had, the village that we created. And very unapologetic about that, I think is the best thing that I've done. It also shows that my friends were the best. The village that I had around me was the best. My parents managed to flew in from Morocco this time around, which was a relief. For a week, my mom was here changing nappies, playing with my daughter as well so she wouldn't feel left out, making sure that I was eating good food. She brought food from Morocco as well. I mean, all of this was very, such a different experience. And when I came again during the summer to Morocco, this time around, my son was two months, just like his sister. The focus was again on me. I got to go to spa almost every other day, massages every day in the morning, Amazing physiotherapist in the afternoon. My mom and dad would take the babies in the morning so my husband and I could sleep in a little bit till 9 a.m., 10 a.m. That's awesome. Entertain my daughter. I mean, really the signification of of a village. I could see it what it means to have a village yes. um, when I was in Morocco. There's absolutely nothing oh. like it. Such such a nice feeling. And I wish there I was wish... a culture and tradition yeah. here in the US. Oh, yes. you gay too, but... Yeah, and what I'm seeing a lot on social media is women complaining about the fact that their mom or their mother-in-law would like to take the baby off of them. And I agree to that. The village is not here to take the baby off. The village is here to take everything else off your plate. So you can actually take care of your baby. Mm. And of course, maybe take the baby here and there for you to take a shower or have a walk, but it would be your choice. It would be your ask rather than an expectation. So I'm trying as much as possible to talk about the postpartum experience in Morocco, just to encourage people and say, look, it does exist in some other parts of the world. It exists and it works fine. It is a traditional way, even in the mountains, in the villages, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And that's how women manage to carry on having children and carry mm-hmm. on being supported. So right. it's something we need to reproduce more and more. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I know for some people, uh, for a lot of people, having even like the food that is your, the food you grew up with. Is yes. So it's like nothing else because it's connected to family and to your heart and to memories and to like so many things, just even that to have that is. 
it is the perfect so comfort food. Uh, it is the perfect comfort food for anyone. Plus, there is a wisdom. People have not picked dishes just because they like it. Women have picked certain dishes because they realize without any scientific base, it's just with experience and time over probably centuries that this particular dish helps with getting more breast milk, milk more milk supply, or this particular dish helps with stopping a bit the um, the bleeding or this particular dish will help with uh, growing your hair because after postpartum, we know there's like hair falling and, and nails and all of that. So growing your hair, your nails, strengthening your body. So everything was really targeted based on what I needed. And for this time around, I didn't really want to challenge it. I didn't want to say like, but this has no scientific base. Certain <laughs> things I would, but anything around my postpartum care, I would just let my mom and people around do what they thought was the best because it worked. Yeah. I don't know why, but it worked. (laughs) So were you working as a doula prior to this or is this your experience? What prompted you to become a doula? Yeah. So after this experience with Noor, with my daughter, I started speaking about my reality and just friends and family were saying like, we need more of that. We definitely need more of that. But I just, again, part of my personality made me feel very inadequate into speaking about those topics without some sort of a certification or Mm -hmm. professional background. So I got certified as a doula just to make sure that whatever I was talking about was not just based on my experience and opinion, but actually Mm -hmm. research-based and evidence-based. So I became a doula when I was pregnant of my second at maybe... The second trimester is when I got my certification and I started becoming a doula right away. I didn't wait. And so far, I've been doing that as much as possible, especially within Muslim women, yeah. Arab women in general, people in Morocco, but also people in UK. I just want to give that space that my doula gave me. Actually, I wish I could have my doula being the doula of all those women, but because mm-hmm. she's now retired, I'm trying to you know, walk into her own steps and for her, what was just amazing is not the knowledge that she brought, although she's very knowledgeable, but it's mostly the space that she left and the mm-hmm. validation and just the acknowledgement, whatever you're feeling is normal. And also the encouragement to take the right steps because postnatal depression is not to be self-diagnosed mm-hmm. and is not to be dealt with on your own, is my opinion. I would say yeah. always to seek some sort of professional support because Otherwise, it can be dragged, like my mom said, for two years in her case. And that's not what we want. For me, it faded away very quickly. Most likely because, like I said, there was the pregnancy, there was the survival instinct for my son that I wanted to be alive and I wanted to be good. But I know for a fact that there was him, but there was also so many other things brought together that made me get out of it. It was the therapy, my husband being more aware of it, my family being more aware of it, myself being more aware of it, Mm. my doula continuing to have that support with her, being able to speak about that with friends and family. I mean, it's just many things that were mm-hmm. part of this puzzle that made me heal. It's not just one thing. It's a lot of small and not so small things mm-hmm. added together, added up together that made me heal completely. It's beautiful. I'm so glad that your experience has prompted you to, to do this work in the world for other women. <laughs> Because it's so needed, right? I mean, your personal experience goes a long way in combination with what you said, the training and and all this other stuff. Jeez, having that personal experience makes you, mm, it helps you to see in more depth what somebody might be experiencing and brings the compassion and, and that like extra little touch of care. 
So I'm sure that the moms you're supporting are in very, very, very good hands. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for saying that. Yes, you're welcome. I'm grateful that you came on to share your journey and for sure so glad that you're doing better. Thank you. Yes, thank you. You know what, it does pass. That's what I would tell as a last sentence for the mom. Everything, this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. These difficult days, they will. Definitely. But thank you very much for having me. It was great to be able to, you know, tell my story, but also get a bit of your insight. And it was very, very useful for me as well. Very therapeutic. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. <laughs> thank you thank for coming you. on. And, you know, especially it's late night where you are. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Please find Abla on Instagram at the Shems Doula to connect with her and see more about the work that she's doing in the world. I also want to let you know that I have created several online courses that are very easy to use, pause, listen to, or watch that are focused on helping you through the early stages of the transition to motherhood. And more than that, they help you understand why you feel the way you feel and give you skills and tools that you can put to use right away. Go to wellmindperinatal.com in the courses section to learn more and get that help today. Find one person that you know who could really benefit from this episode and please share it with them. As I say every time, the more people who know about perinatal mental health conditions and that there is help available, the less people will suffer. I thank you so much for being with us. Until next time. Please find the Mom and Mind podcast on momandmind.com or wellmindperinatal.com, where you can also find access to my free online mini course that is specifically designed for people experiencing anxiety in the postpartum period. Or you can learn more about the three and a half hour self-paced course that I created just for managing postpartum stress. You can also connect with us on social media at Mom and Mind on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for tuning in and learning more about perinatal mental health. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.